Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash, making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no Oh snap! Welcome to Escaping Society, um, episode 21, Back to Reality. I'm Gumby. I'm Teresa. And we are in California on the Redwood Highway, about 160 miles north of San Francisco. Um, got to go through the, the Redwoods yesterday, which is always one of my, my favorite things to do when I'm out this way. Um, and for this episode, we're going to talk about what happens when society finishes. And I was careful how I worded that because it's not if, like civilization is collapsing and it's not when the end begins because it's already happening. So um, as soon as this gets done, as soon as civilization is over, and let's hope it happens soon because I think the sooner civilization collapses, um, the more life is actually going to be preserved because of the the destruction we're causing. What happens after that? Um, For one thing, it's kind of the, the end of this artificial world we've created, the simulation. Um, we have surrounded ourselves with a fake situation where food just magically comes from a grocery store, packaged, where we flip a switch and light, lo and behold, just comes on and we have no, we don't have to think about all the steps involved, all the people involved, all the resources involved to our simplest uh means of life, um, from flushing the toilet to washing the dishes to all the products we buy. So that's going to come to an end, and it's going to be a splash of cold water. Like, that's going to be a big dose of reality for our culture. Um, One of the things, the main thing I wanted to talk about here in this episode is what I was taught to call the four priorities of survival. Um... And I actually think of these as five, because when I was taught these priorities of survival, um, they kind of added like an afterthought, like, oh, an attitude is really the first one. Now, over time, as I've tested these and done my uh, survival overnight, survival classes, t- and, and tried these out, I've come to decide that that attitude is number one, a big number one. It, it shouldn't be a, an afterthought or parentheses. It is, in fact, the most important priority of survival. Um And keep in mind that these are guides. They are not rules. So, in other words, um, these are very flexible depending on your situation. You, uh, this order I have found helpful enough that if I'm, if I'm confused, if I need to, like, consider what to do next, I think these are worth teaching. And I've been teaching kids these, these, um, order of survival, these priorities of survival for years at a camp I've been doing in the summer called Fort Building Camp. 
um, and also another wood, another one that's uh, more survival oriented called Wild Woods. Um, so this is going to be a quick, fast-paced crash course into these survival topics. Um, we hope to do whole podcast episodes later on each one of these um, by themselves. So in other words, a whole hour on shelter, because there's a lot of material to cover. Um, but my hope for this podcast is just to give you like a quick overview of everything we want to cover. Um, the order of survival is the way I see it, attitude, that's the one that gets left off a lot. And then ones that are widely agreed upon are shelter, water, fire, and food in that order. Um, so in other words, you know, if you're lost in the woods or let's say if civilization has finally collapsed, it's the day that you finally, we, we finally recognize like, wow, okay, it's done. It's time to shift paradigms. The first thing you got to think about is your attitude. If you're freaked out, if you're using the old mindset that worked in this culture, it's not going to work. You've got to shift gears really fast. And the time to practice all these skills, including attitude is now, um, they say, like, attitude is immediate, and they say the next thing is shelter. They say you can, you know, survive for maybe overnight, um, but shelter actually gets you through that first night, depending on the weather. You know, it's cold. You could get hypothermia. It could be rainy. Um, so that's the next thing you need to focus on. After that, they say you can go for a few days, to weather depending again, without water. So after shelter, you got to think, be thinking about water. And as we'll talk about later, these things blend together. It's not really step by step. You're actually thinking about all these things. They just give you a general guide of how to prioritize. Um, so you got your shelter, you got your water. Now it's time to throw your energy into fire. Make sure you got fire. Fire is a huge tool. And finally, food. They say you can go for a month without food. And I guess just by not dying standards, that's true. Um, but having done survival trips and gone without food, it's really impairing your ability to do anything else to be without that food. So that is a pretty high priority, just not as high as the rest of them. I've heard other people say like the, the rule of threes, you can go three minutes without oxygen, three minutes without this or that. I think oxygen is a really stupid priority to throw into a survivalist. If you're deprived of oxygen, you do not need to think about a list. You're fighting to get air. There's no list required. It's not helpful at all. Um, if you don't have oxygen, you're fighting to take that breath. That's all you're doing. That is high priority. That's number one. After that, then maybe you've got a little breathing room, because you've got the oxygen, to think about the other priorities, and then that can be helpful. And again, I want to emphasize, this is all about the practice. None of these um, topics really um, are going to serve you unless you start practicing now. I know a lot of armchair survivalists that are like, oh, yeah, I did that once. I took a class on that. I know how to do that. I watch all the survival shows. Um, and I used to do these survival overnights, which I hope to do some more. But the whole premise of the survival overnight was let's go in the woods and put ourselves in an actual survival situation. Um Near our cars where we could walk out, you know, I don't want to, I'm not trying to be macho and dangerous. I just want to feel what it's like to need these skills. So we'd walk a mile or two out in the woods away from our cars, and we would live by these survival skills in a very controlled, um, progressively difficult way. So in other words, longer periods out um, and harder survival challenges. 
And what I found is a lot of the people that think they know this stuff, they won't even come to the survival overnights. They are using their, like a security blanket, they're feeling that, oh yeah, I already know this stuff, instead of the actuality of facing what they don't know. And the people that actually did come out to them, including myself, definitely including myself, we got big surprises. I've been teaching how to make traps for years in my classes. Never actually caught an animal with a trap. But as soon as I put myself in a situation where my food was dependent on it, I realized I don't know traps. I don't know crap about trapping. I know how to build one, but that's nothing. You have to know about tracking. You have to know about time of year. You got to know about the animals. You got to know about all these nuances that make it real. And if I hadn't practiced, if I had just been in a real unlimited survival situation thinking that I knew how to make a trap and that would save my life, I probably would have been wrong. I probably would have starved to death. So for all these things, and I'm probably going to bring this up for each one of them again because it is worth repeating over and over and over, practice. Get familiar with it. Get good at it now before you need it. Um, is there anything you want to add to that, Teresa? Um, you always would say, like, watching the shows where people would have to go into a survival situation that the ones who didn't know anything, like they knew they didn't know anything, they actually did better because of their attitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that because uh, our next topic is attitude. So, um, But that's a really um, – was an interesting observation. Um, and let's see, anything you want to mention about the survival overnights real quick? Uh, <clears throat> well, I guess um, my own experience of like being out there for one night or two nights uh, thus far has been really eye-opening, and it's made me appreciate – a lot of the things that we take for granted, especially food. Um, but yeah, I don't want to take up too much time. Now we got a little bit of time. Actually, we're uh, dividing this show up into 10-minute segments so we can cover all of our topics and hopefully finish up in our hour. Is there any uh, highlight or anything? Because Teresa's been with me for a few camps where we've gone over these uh, priorities of survival. Is there anything that jumps out at you as like something that really uh, spoke to you as a good thing or maybe something that you felt like didn't quite fit? Because you've kind of got a little bit of experience with survival overnights and things like that now. Um, I guess it's, I mean, you're going to be talking about the different priorities of survival here. But I'll just say that um, we just did a podcast on Peace Pilgrim. And it, it was interesting to hear, like back then, that she was also supposedly making leaf piles, giant leaf piles, as her shelter to stay warm. So that was just like a, a common sense thing back in the... I guess like 40s and 1940s and before that, if you get stuck and it's cold somewhere, build a giant leaf pile. And um, and I guess also for the food, it's amazing what you find in the woods. Um, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, man, I'll tell you what, deer corn is delicious when you're starving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's debatable. Um, <laughs> well, it was to me. <laughs> okay, so... You're lost in the woods, or civilization is finally done. No more grocery stores, no more electricity, no more of the things that have kept us sheltered in this bubble where we can keep destroying the world and feel removed from it. Now, bam, you're back in the middle of it. You are directly connected. Your fate is entwined with the fate of the forest, and there's no mistaking it anymore. Back to reality. First thing, attitude. This is so important, and I didn't realize this when I started survival uh, training. I was like, teach me shelter, teach me fire, you know, teach me the skills. 
I didn't know back then how important it was to get my head straight because none of this other stuff is going to serve you or work unless you have gotten your head straight. Um, it is a vital mind game you're going to play with yourself. This is what's going to take most people out when civilization collapses. I don't know if that's going to look like just people losing their minds like Mad Max, mass suicides, but trying to wrap their mind around reality, trying to recognize like, wow, I have never tasted reality in my life in this culture. That's going to break a lot of people. And no the person, Google. no Google, <laughs> n- no podcast, no YouTube and no van to live in. Um, no, no swimming pools or movie stars. Um, and as Teresa was bringing up the survival shows, I've watched quite a few of these where they have like a big contest where people go out in the forest and you've got like the hunter from Texas, you've got the survival expert from Alaska, and you've got like this lawyer from New York City. You've got the whole spectrum of experience. And so many times... The survival experts will be the first to drop out of the show. And I'm thinking of one in particular where it was the New York lawyer who won this Alaskan survival uh, expedition, and it was hardcore. Um, And I think a lot about that. Like, why? You know, this guy, this hunter and the survival expert have all the skills. How did this guy with no skills win? It's because attitude is so important. The skills made these people rigid, filled them with expectations. This is what's supposed to happen. When I build this trap, this is what's supposed to happen. I'm a good hunter, so I'm supposed to get stuff to eat within this amount of time. The New York lawyer knew he didn't know crap, so he came in humble. You know, he didn't have that rigidity, and that adaptability gave him the advantage. Because let's face it, it's an odds game. Survival is always an odds game. There's no guarantee. I've had people ask me, well, could you survive here at this time of year? I don't know. It's always an odds game. I'm hoping by learning skills and practicing things, I increase my odds, but it's never a guarantee. So that adaptability, that open mind, the beginner's mind, as they say in Zen, of the lawyer who knew he didn't know anything, gave him the definitive edge. Um, I love that Obi-Wan Kenobi quote from Star Wars where he says, Be mindful of your feelings, Anakin, for your focus determines your reality. This is so true. The biggest power we have is choice. So sit down and recognize you are making a choice. Whether you're conscious of it or not, a choice is being made. Are you going to panic? Are you going to freak out? Are you going to throw yourself into a nightmare? Because if you, your focus is on all the things you don't have, that will become your reality. You'll be living in a deficit. You'll be living in a horrible, horrible place that's not worth surviving in. You're broken. End game right there. Or can you choose to look for the blessings? Because if you're still drawing breath, You've got blessings. Um, You just have to practice finding them and start practicing them now. Um, As we talked about a little bit with the Peace Pilgrim podcast last last, uh, episode, find your need level. Explore that. It is so much less than what you probably think it is. Even if you consider yourself a minimalist, you probably have some things that are extra. Practice relating to need. Um, and at that need level, practice gratitude. Survival overnights were great for that because there would be times when our shelter would not be keeping us warm. It'd be leaking water. We'd be wet. We wouldn't even be in the shelter because the damn thing was so horrible. We'd just be cuddled up against a tree waiting for the dawn. The fire didn't get lit. We didn't find anything good to eat. And that was the time that it was crucial to count our blessings. Well, the stars are out. They're pretty. Um, 
the dawn's coming soon. It's going to warm up. That's something I feel good about. There's another chance tomorrow to find food. And I've got another idea of something I didn't try today. So I'm going to try something new and maybe that'll work. That hope, that gratitude. There's so much to, to give thanks for. That is a huge practice. And at the end of every night of a survival overnight, we would do highlights of the day, which was our way of, of giving thanks. What went right? Um, and that would be our way of our focus determining our reality. That also helps adaptability. Because if you can count your blessings, you can change as the situation changes. Maybe an unexpected storm comes in. Maybe the weather changes. Maybe the food wasn't like you thought there would be berries over here because of the season, but it was an odd year. The berries aren't there. Focus on the gratitude. What did you find? What did go right? There's always something. And if you can do that, that really helps your flexibility of mind, your adaptability. Um, a couple of things that have helped me with attitude, and by the way, I'm not talking, uh, I'm not saying this as somebody who thinks they're an expert at this. This is the hardest thing, I think, for all of us, is to get a hold of your mind. It's nothing you will ever be an expert in, at least to my way of thinking. Maybe there's a couple Buddhas out there, but I've never met someone I, I thought was an expert at this. Um, quiet sitting, I think, is huge. This is how you practice attitude, or one of the ways. Um, I love doing a sit spot, where you just go out in the woods and sit for up to 40 minutes. If all you've got is 5 or 10 minutes, do that, at least once a day. Sit down and just open yourself, open your senses. This is a good practice. This will help you if you ever need it in a survival situation. You will know what to do. You're freaking out. A lot of people won't even recognize they're freaking out. They'll think the, the situation is what's freaking out. Things have just turned horrible. It's a nightmare. They don't recognize the nightmare is the way they're looking at it. The things are just the way they are. Um, Shamatha. It's a type of uh, meditation taught in Buddhism where you follow your breath. Because if you're alive, it doesn't matter whether you're handicapped, whether you're old, whether you're young, obese, you've got breath. If you don't have breath, then all this is irrelevant. Follow your breath. Focus on your breath and practice the things coming up. Um, if it's fear, maybe it's overwhelming fear, crippling free fear, sit with it. Maybe it's boredom. Maybe you're out there at your sit spot and you're just like, oh, crap, i got so many things to do. This is so boring. The mosquitoes are eating me. See how long you can sit with that. If you practice sitting with things, um, you'll find that a lot of things that seem intolerable aren't so intolerable. So some kind of quiet sitting. I have tried to do both, um, and there are different times that the sit spot really serves me best, just kind of being out there and sitting and uh, using my senses, seeing how much I can notice out there, that takes me to kind of a calmer place. And sometimes following my breath, like turning that, that focus inward is kind of the thing that really helps. Um, another thing that I think helps is to remind yourself that death is already certain. The end of the game, the end of your road is already death. And when you think about what you're really afraid of, and one way or the other, it's usually death. Death is lurking out there, and as uh, Don Juan tells Carlos Castaneda, the only wise advisor is your death. Um, whenever you feel like everything's crashing down around you and in turmoil, as you often do, then turn to your death and ask, you know, is this true? And your death will say, I haven't touched you yet. Nothing's true outside of my touch. If you've got life, then you've got reality. You've got all the possibilities. So treat your life like the short adventure it is. Um... You know, I, I really, when I'm in a survival situation, like to think about when bad things happen, when I'm not 
getting food or whatever that if I survive it, then I'm going to have a really cool story to share. And when I share my stories, like usually with kids, I love sharing the stories of my failure because it's so easy for a kid to look up to you and think like, oh, you know, of course they can do it. They're, you know, this folk hero because kids love to make, make a folk hero out of you. But the failures really like they can identify with it. And that's what's going to help them because they're going to meet failure. And failure is a tremendous teacher. So, yeah, anything real quick you want to add about attitude? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess that activity that we did with the kids where they would go and find a sit spot and even just for like five minutes sitting by a tree, finding something that feels like home, it can really help your attitude if you get lost in the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I just can't emphasize this enough. This is definitely not accidentally uh, number one on the priority list. Um, I would drill this with the kids every day. I'd ask them, like, so what's the first thing? You know, you're lost in the woods. I wouldn't talk about the end of civilization so much, although I probably would now. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, attitude, man, getting your head straight. So you've sat down. You've got a little bit of handle. And, again, you've been practicing, so it's not like a new thing you're trying because that's a hell of a time to try to get a handle on your attitude is when <laughs> everything is in turmoil. Everything's falling apart. Now it's time to think about shelter. Attitude is sort of the, the foundation block for all the rest of the priorities. So I'd say, first of all, think about the attitude of shelter. And what I mean by that is I find it to be a reassuring thought to remind myself that I belong on this planet. Mm-hmm. I'm not an alien to this planet. What our science tells us is that we're in this vast, unfathomable ocean of space, cold, dark space, and we're on this tiny little planet in the middle of all that space. Now think about all the places in the known universe you could be that you would die immediately. You have no hope of survival. Zero. This list means nothing. It's irrelevant. But you happen to be on that one beautiful, shining, glowing orb that is your home. Your body has evolved to be here. Through countless generations, ancestors upon ancestors, you've been shaped by this world to be here, to take its food, to know what to do with its food, to drink its water, to breathe its air, to give your own exhalations back to the trees, your own body, to be recycled into nutrients. You belong here. So right away, just by being alive, so much is in your favor. You are already, by being on this world, in a really good shelter. So then the question, instead of finding shelter like it's something out there you need to get to, becomes, how do you improve your shelter? How do you make it a little bit better? Um, I would start with clothing. Don't forget that your clothing is your first shelter. And there's a good chance that when something happens, when you need this, whether we're talking about getting lost in the woods or we're talking about you know, that day that it finally comes crashing down where civilization is definitively over, that's going to be a bad time to decide you need to go to REI and buy the right clothes. (laughs) I would say start dressing now um, according to common sense. And, you know, I'm not going to say fashion doesn't play any role. You know, you got to feel good in your clothes because that affects your reality too. But you can find things that are both a compromise between fashion, the clothes you like, and that are very practical. In cold weather, which is when you need your clothes the most, I mean, let's face it, in warm weather, you know, if you're not trying to impress the Joneses or fit into our culture, it becomes a lot more irrelevant what or if you're wearing anything. 
In the winter, wool. Wool is the best. Uh, get wool. Some people are really itchy with wool, but they're making wool that's really smoother now. But if you're really itchy with wool, you know, wear clothes underneath it. But start considering having like a wool coat around. Have that when you're you're going out in the woods. Second, it's fleece. I really love fleece too, and that's a lot more friendly with your skin. And polypropylene, the stuff that you can get at, at REI and stuff like that is a really good one too. All these things trap moisture, even when they're cold and wet, they will, I mean, not trap moisture, trap heat. They will keep you warm, and I've experienced this. Cotton, um, a lot of people call it death cloth, and there is a place for <laughs> cotton. If you're in a really hot environment... Like India. Like India. It makes sense <laughs> to have some light cotton. You know, Consider the colors, too. Light colors tend to reflect sunlight and keep you cooler. Dark colors tend to contain sunlight and uh, trap it and keep you warmer. So... I've been in a survival situation where it was really cold. I got soaked to the bone and I was shivering. I was in my shelter and I couldn't stop shivering. And I realized my long underwear were made out of cotton. Mm. So, you know, in this panicked, unpracticed, here we go again, like, thank God I practiced this. I might have kept that long underwear on because I'd be thinking, I need more clothes. If anything, I want more clothes. I wish I had a blanket. And God only knows what would have happened. But since I was practicing, this was the time to try it, I took off my long underwear, that wet death cloth, that wet cotton. And all I had were my outer garments of wool. And damn, if it didn't, I wasn't much warmer. I stopped shivering. So picking out the right clothes is really important. Um, another thing to know about shelter, and again, this is just a crash course, um, is location is more important than whatever structure you build. A good shelter in a bad location is a bad shelter. So I was taught to spend more time looking for the location of your shelter than building it. And I've built a lot of survival shelters, and most of them, at least in North Carolina, when I try to build them, um, took a lot of time. I've heard you can, like, slap one together in a couple hours. I've yet to slap an effective shelter together in a couple hours. So maybe that's me, but before you judge me on that, go try it yourself and sleep in it. <laughs> and if you can do it, write on. Like, please write me and tell me <laughs> some tips you learned. But that location, again, remember, you're on, you're on your home planet, Earth. You're already in a shelter. The trees are your shelter just by growing. They're blocking you from the sun that could bake you. They're breaking... Uh, breaking the wind. They're like giving you a <laughs> wind you. break. So find that location. Um, a good tip I learned along the way was what's called the five W's for a good location. One W is wood. So wherever you're at, think about the materials you're going to need to build your shelter, even if it's just leaves. Is it woods that have like grapevines everywhere that it's hard to pile them? Or is it like a nice smooth areas between the trees that you can pile leaves quick? This is a good location for a shelter. Um, are there dead wood? Is there dead wood in the trees that you can, if you want to make a more advanced shelter, that you could build that? Make traps, make all kinds of things that are useful. Your fire, you're going to need good dry dead wood. So that's a good thing to look for. Second W, water. And this is where we start talking about, it's not step-by-step. Step. All these things, even as you're thinking about shelter, you're thinking about water. You want to be close to water. If you build a great shelter, great location, it's going good, but then you discover you got to walk 10 miles for water, and you're going to need water in three days, that shelter sucks. But you don't want to be too close to water. A lot of people, when they're camping, they want the scenic thing right beside the river. It's not a good place. If the river floods, you're in trouble, and even if it doesn't flood... Um, it tends to be a place that holds moisture. That's why the water's there. It's going to be wet ground. 
and wet ground or ground itself can suck the heat right out of your body. So that's something to definitely take into consideration. Um, wind, you know, you got to, let's see, we've done, what is it? Wood, Wood water. water, which means close to water, but not too close. And weather. So wind is included in weather. Um, I think one of the most important things with weather is practice knowing your directions. And in your area, like in North Carolina, um, most of the wind, most of the bad weather comes from the west. So that tells me a lot about my location. If there's a sunny place in the winter, a south-facing slope, especially if there's some thick trees to the west that are blocking the wind from that direction, wow, what a great location. Just by sitting there, um, I've improved my shelter situation greatly. And this is where you find all the deer beds, too. The animals know this. The animals aren't building structures for the most part. They're just finding the right place to lay. So this is at the level they're working on. They're already creatures of the earth. They got that going for them. They're on the right planet. Then they start finding the location. And that alone gets most animals through really harsh weather. Mm -hmm. Um, Location can also be like a big uh, tree that's fallen over, you know, just to get out of the rain or a thick hemlock. Um, But practicing location and facing your shelter or yourself towards the east and south, because that's when the sun's going to come up. And the coldest part of the day is right before dawn. So using those those locations. Wigglies, hazards. I'm going to try to go through this quick. Hazards are knowing poison ivy, poison oak. We've got some videos on this if you don't feel uh, confident with that. Walking through your location before you do anything. Are there seed ticks on your socks? Yellow jacket nest? Uh, And also, let's say civilization is collapsing. We need to to be safe from other human beings. There's going to be a lot of desperate people out there um, that are freaking out. You know, they, mm-hmm. they have not been practicing this stuff. So if they see you doing better than them, it's not just a matter of good guys and bad guys. It's a matter of what would you do to take care of your family. It's not just the bad guys you got to worry about. It's everybody. Because if you've got an advantage, who's going to sit there and let their kids starve? Like, is that a good guy that would just let their kids starve when you've got something that might keep their kid alive another couple of days? So it's going to be some stiff competition out there. Um, and finally... Widowmakers. Always look up. This is the one I always forget. <laughs> dead trees, dead branches. If the weather turns bad, is there something that could fall on your shelter? I know somebody who died from a widowmaker, so this is a real thing. Um, I'm not going to go over the four principles of it. Well, I'll just go over them real quick. Your shelter, no matter what it is, it should have a source of heat, and that could be your body. It should have a way to trap the heat. It should have a way to um, shed water, which that's got a lot to do with the angles, 45-degree angles. And it should... Um, have a way to plug holes if possible. So in other words, you got this great shelter that does the other three things, but you got a great big doorway and a, sh- a crappy door, all your heat's escaping. So those are the four principles really quick of any good shelter. Small is beautiful. Do not plan on building a big log cabin. Um, think more in terms of like a sleeping bag. You know, if later on you found a great location you feel safe about and way down the road you decide to build something a little more roomy, great. But a survival shelter right in the beginning to keep you alive should be a big stuffed sleeping bag. And the best survival shelter I've ever found is a giant leaf pile. If you forget everything else I've said, you get lost in the woods, it's cold, you're facing um, hypothermia, pile leaves like there's no tomorrow, squirm into the middle of it. Peace Pilgrim figured that out. She mentioned that. And that is the simplest, it's the coziest survival shelter I've ever been in. So moving on to water. You've got your head straight, you got a shelter, and it's near water, so you've already thought about water. It's not a new step. 
Now let's improve your water situation. Again, let's look at the attitude of water first. We are already adapted, um, what I would think of as adapted water beings. There's a lot of evidence um, that we have ancestors that came out of the ocean. We have flowing liquid in our veins. We have means of trapping water. All of our cells are like water balloons. Um, what's the percentage they say we're made of water? Oh, geez, I don't remember. It's like 75 or 85, <laughs> but it's a lot. It's Basically, it's saying you're mostly made of water. There's a lot of indications of your close relationship with water. So your body is already designed to take care of this water, to carry water, to be a water being. So that can be a point in your favor. It's also the challenge because your body needs water. You are like a leaky bucket. You're sweating. The wind's trying to steal your water. Um, you, you pee it out. So it's constantly a challenge to make sure you stay hydrated. And let me tell you, it's different than when you're in your everyday world um, eating the food you're used to and drinking a lot of water. There's something that happens in the woods that it is harder to stay hydrated, and I'm still not sure exactly what that is. But I've gone out there and I've drank water, like way more water than I usually do, and still my lips are getting dry, I'm getting a headache, I'm peeing a lot, and the pee is really like yellow. Um, all the indications that I'm not getting enough water, and I can't figure it out because I'm guzzling water. Yeah, it's like the exposure to the sun and the, all the elements, even if it's a nice day. Yeah, so be prepared for that. Um, water is going to be different. It's not just a matter of like, oh, I, I got no problem with that. I drink the right amount of water every day. When your life changes that drastically, your relationship to water is going to change. Water is Earth's lifeblood. Um, it is, you know, I've been I've been told when you go to a doctor, you know, think of it this way. The doctor takes your blood to see how healthy you are. You know, he checks your blood for things. It's pretty routine practice for any number of things that might be wrong with you, they're going to check your blood because your blood is an indication of how the whole body's doing. Water is Earth's lifeblood. And think about what we're doing. We're giving this organism that we're a part of basically sepsis when we pollute it. Mm. Um, we have created water, have turned it into a survival situation. It used to be, you know, if I was like talking about this 300 years ago, people would be like, water? I mean, duh, go downhill. Even even my uncle, who was going camping out west in the 1970s, was told by a lot of the park rangers, like, what are you carrying so much water for? And then a few years later, he said that's when the Giardia and all of the um, uh, pollution started showing up in the water. So it isn't just 300 years ago. It's like 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> and still, you know, before... You've got to find water, so going downhill still is a sensible thing to do. If you're wondering where to find water, keep going downhill. You get to a valley, see if you can make your best guess of which end of that valley is more downhill. Keep going downhill, and you'll probably find water. gets a little tricky in some landscapes, like the desert. Um, hard to tell where downhill is in the middle of a desert, but in a lot of areas you're going to be in. It's uh, common sense. Right now it's kind of a duh statement, but you'd be surprised what is good to have in a list when you're freaking out, when you've got so much on your plate. Common sense isn't always the most prominent thing going on in your mind at that time. So having a little reminder like, oh, downhill, that's where I find water. <laughs> and remember, you're doing this before you build your shelter because your location to build your shelter must have water nearby. Um, two dangers, two things you got to think about with water are one, man-made pollutions. So what we've put in the water. And the other 
is natural imbalance, also usually caused or at least worsened by us. And this is like protozoa, um, giardia, you know, things like that that can be in the water. What's another one? Cryptosporidium. That's something that's uh, pretty common in North Carolina when you run into it. Um, God, and there's another one. (laughs) The blue-green algae blooms of 2019. (laughs) Yeah, God, the blue-green algae blooms where all the agricultural nitrogen is running into the water, feeding the blue-green algae, and that's become a poisonous thing, like a very deadly thing. Um, Around the Great Lakes, North Carolina, I've heard out west here too. So this might be something we're going to hear a lot more about. It seems to be increasing. But this is an example of not a direct like pollution as you think of it, but a natural imbalance that has created a hazard. Um, We did this. We have made this into a survival priority. And that is a really sad um, commentary on the madness of our culture, exactly why I'm praying for civilization to fall as soon as we can. So we, this, this kind of thing can stop. Um, so pollution, natural imbalance, and it's treated in two different ways. To look for pollution, there's not much you can do to treat water that's polluted, but you can um, look for water indicators that tell you if the water is polluted. There's these really cool, like, uh, the sheet that I've studied that's put out by, I can't remember where, but if you uh, look up water indicators, it might take you to it. But there's like first level, which are the most sensitive water indicators, second level, a little bit tougher, third level, a little tougher still, and everything that's not in one of these, it's probably so tough that they could live in polluted water. They're not a reliable water indicator. Hmm. Crayfish, for instance, is a really good one. We're familiar with crayfish. We know what they look like. Third level water indicator. You see crayfish? pretty good sign that the water is not excessively polluted with man-made chemicals. So, you know, I would find like a little bit of hope in seeing a crayfish. It doesn't mean it's super clean. It's only third level. Um, and there that, are these... that doesn't mean that it still doesn't have like Giardia or something in it. Yeah, we're talking about man-made pollution right mm-hmm. now. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the natural imbalance in a minute. But um, also these there are these snails, these gilled snails and pouch snails. I find that Um, You know, there are many other creatures, but um, if you find a little snail that's on the rocks of a stream and it's kind of got like a little cone shape, like an ice cream cone, where the hole is at the bottom, and you hold it up where the the, the point of the cone is pointing up, that little hole where its body would come out of will look like it's either on the left side or right side facing you. Um, You might have to practice this to really know what I'm talking about. If it's on the right side, that water is all right. That is a first-level water indicator. To see a lot of them is a very hopeful sign that the water is relatively free of pollution, uh, factory dumps, things like that. Mm. If it's on the left side, that's a second-level water indicator. So that's still a good sign, just not necessarily as good as the the first level. Dead vegetation. If you see a lot of dead vegetation right around the the water, you know, of course, that's a sign like, oh, man, this could be a recent chemical spill of some kind. Mm. So... Just avoid that. There's not much you can do about that. If you're seeing death in the stream or a lack of water indicators and you've got choices, um, see if you can find another source. For um, To find a good place to check for water, start going upstream. The reason for that is if you come to a branch where there's a feeder stream, take the smaller one. You might come to a source really soon, and often the source does not look that good. You're looking at the stream. It looks all clear, and it's flowing, and it's big, but your source is just trickling down, looks kind of muddy. But because it's a source, if you're careful, you might be near the spring, the source. It's got less room to be polluted Hmm. by 
man-made pollutions, chemical dumps, pooped in the water by animals, anything like that. Um, so avoiding polluted streams if you don't see water indicators. And by the way, if you forget these species, start looking under rocks for like anything squiggling around. Mm-hmm. These are all basically sensitive larval stages of insects that are tied to the water. They are the first things to die when water gets polluted. Um, they're super sensitive, which makes them great water indicators. So if you forget everything else, look under rocks, see a lot of squiggling things, squiggling things. That's an encouraging sign. Now, water can have all those squiggling things and still have the giardia, the cryptosporidium, the natural imbalances. The best way to treat that is to boil it. Um, if you're lucky enough to have a fire and some way to boil it, um, litter is great. I'll find like soda cans, beer cans, beer bottles, and I'll just boil them in those. If I was going to bring one thing to help me on a survival trip that would help me with water, it would be a metal cup, just in case I don't find that letter. You can find other, you can make other containers, but it's time-consuming, and you've got a lot of things to do out there. So anything to give you an advantage, um, even just picking up a beer bottle, for instance, you can boil water as long as you keep it full and don't cap it on a campfire. Purify the water, boil it. Mm. People talk about filtering. I'm not crazy about filtering. Sometimes I use a bandana to filter it into another bottle just because it... I don't know, makes it maybe taste a little bit better, definitely can make it look better, but I have not found that to be a super important thing in any of the situations I've been in. Um, And if you don't have a fire, an earth well. Go see if you can find a floodplain that's near the water. Go at least five feet away, up to 20 feet away if you can, and start digging down. If you got a shovel, great. If you got a pointy stick, dig with that. You will eventually get below water level. That water will fill up in the hole, and even though it's going to be muddy, The water has been filtered from the pollutions, unless you're directly in a really hazardous area Mm -hmm. that could be in the water, and the natural imbalances. That's going to be safe drinking water. So that is a vital thing. I've been in situations where I didn't have fire, and I was like, well, what do I do now? The earth well is the answer. Of course, if you don't protect this, if you don't cover it up, um, an animal could poop in it overnight, then you might be dealing with a new outbreak of uh, cryptosporidium or something like that. Now you've got your, your head straight, your attitude, you built your shelter, you got water, you're feeling good about that, fire. And again, these are not steps. There have been plenty of situations where fire is the first thing I'm working on, other than attitude. Attitude is always number one. Fire, I think of it as sort of the human power, the human magic. When I hear people have discussions about what makes us unique from other animals, I hear a sense of humor. I've seen my dog play tricks on me. I know that we don't have a monopoly on humor. I've seen tool usage. I've seen other animals use tools. You know, we don't have a monopoly on that. One thing I think of that's unique to us is our relationship with fire. We have learned how to harness the power of fire, and our culture is built on it. We've forged weapons. We've forged tools that have allowed us to spread our agriculture all over the planet, to fight wars, to get more land. When you look at all the technology around you, fire, heat was involved. Even this iPad I'm talking to, this glowing screen, um, this is fire. This is fire that made this. If we took fire out of the equation, we would have none of our technology. We are a fire culture, a fire creature. It is part of our human magic, and this is a really special thing. Um, when I've been in survival overnights, it's it's interesting that I'll have my shelter built, I'll find water um, that I feel good about, but I still feel... Um, badly. I feel like something's missing until fire's there. Whenever fire shows up, it's like a switch has been flipped. It's the missing member of my tribe. 
Fire is man's and woman's best friend, right up there with a dog. Um, fire is a powerful thing. And again, you may think you know how to build a fire. <laughs> this comes up in every class I teach with kids. I figured out early on, send the kids out on a 15-minute fire challenge. you got 15 minutes. You're going to have one match. Go. Make a fire. I have to let them fail before they'll listen to me because every kid thinks they know how to build a fire. This is true with a lot of adults, too. <laughs> if you think you know how to build a fire, go out there with one match. Give yourself 10 or 15 minutes. And if you have luck, it was a sunny day, try it in the rain. Test yourself. Let yourself fail because you probably don't know as much as you think you do. And if there's one tool other than attitude that's really going to turn your survival situation around, it is the ability to make a fire. I would, again, use that, that one match um, practice over and over and over. Um, it's fun, you know, especially if you've got some friends to do this with. One match, 15 minutes. If you're really good at that, 10 minutes. Hell, maybe even five minutes. It will teach you by rushing around and, and troubleshooting what works and what doesn't. Um, where are the tiny sticks? Almost every area has some plant that provides really good tiny sticks. In the Piedmont of North Carolina, red cedar. Man, I see red cedar. More often than not, I've got my tiny sticks, and I've got a pretty damn good chance of starting a fire. In the mountains, hemlock. Out here out west, I mean, there's, I don't even know all the trees, but I know the poisonous ones to stay away from, and so I don't have to recognize it. If I see those tiny sticks, again, it greatly increases my odds. No guarantees. we got a bunch of tiny sticks overhead. Yeah. <clears throat> and it also humbles you. Like, fire is the great humbler. Um, if you're cocky, boy, you start working with fire, it will knock you down a peg. And believe me, that is a favor. Nature loves to take a cocky bastard and show them how little they know. <laughs> I speak from experience. So fire will humble you every time. I used to be so good at friction fire, bow drill fire, and I just took it for granted. Like, well, learn that skill. I'll move on to the next one. Because I didn't practice it, I get out there. Man, I've been in survival situations where I'm working with other people, taking turns for two and a half days nonstop before we won our fire. Talk about humbling. Um, it's useful to all priorities. Fire will improve your shelter, even if your shelter is an absolute failure. I've been in the winter with the rain coming down, built a huge fire, log cabin style, and uh, that's my favorite way to have a fire in the rain, and that has kept me through the night. It was a miserable night, but I might have died if I hadn't had the fire. Fire helps you purify your water. How are you going to boil your water without fire? So fire helps with that. Fire allows you to eat things that you couldn't otherwise eat. There's a lot of mushrooms that I wouldn't eat raw. Um, but I'll eat them cooked. And a lot of meat, a lot of meat that I would not eat raw, but I'll eat them cooked. Fire does a big favor for all the other survival priorities. Oh, there's a video on a one-match fire on our YouTube channel. Yeah. Yeah, we've got <laughs> videos on a lot of this stuff, so check out our YouTube channel. Um, I'd say the one thing that I would carry with me, and of course, you know, I'm not mentioning common sense things, like if you can carry a lighter, hell yeah, keep a lighter in your pocket. <laughs> But one of my favorite things is a magnesium striker. I mean, you can go to Walmart and get one for like five bucks. And this thing is so damn useful. It's got the striker on one side, so you can create a spark. And then it's got the magnesium on the other, so you can scrape, you know, they say about a quarter size, like if it was the diameter of a quarter laying on the ground, a pile of magnesium. And then you strike the other side. They say to use the sharp end of your knife, but I like to keep my knife sharp. So I use the back end and find it works just as well if I get the right angle. And I have my tinder, 
Um, tinder is like any kind of fluffy stuff that's good to have around, really fibrous, dry stuff. You can keep that in your pocket to help it stay dry. Light my fire. That magnesium striker, um, the bang for the buck, you can't beat it. It saved my butt um, several times. I would also say, um, let's see, I'm looking at my list here. I would also say that, um, oh shit, I forgot what I was also going to say. <laughs> so I'll also say this. You, you were talking about what you would have with you. You really liked the magnesium Yeah, the striker. magnesium striker was the main thing. Um, talk about a knife or anything like that? No, I mean, a knife is definitely a good thing to have. I'm, I'm focusing mainly on these, uh, the different survival priorities. There's many things that if we, uh, open this up, but if you have something you've had experience with, you think it's a good idea, definitely jump in there. Um, two lineages of fire, um, friction fire, which is basically some way to rub wood together. Like when you rub your hands together and you get that heat, that's friction. You can do the same thing with wood and, uh, you know, a lot of different methods from fire saw to hand drill to bow drill, which I think is the best. That's always my fallback. If other things don't work, um, you can get fire that way. And the other lineage is like flint and steel. So our modern lighters are part of the flint and steel lineage. It's still flint and steel with just uh, fuel added to it. So it sustains a flame. The friction fire is going to give you freedom. Flint and steel will run out. It's already hard to find flint in most places in the world because it got mined so much. It got used so much. You can use quartz in its place. And it's also hard to find the right kind of steel because the right kind of steel is untempered. Most metal you're going to find nowadays is tempered. I've heard you can heat it up to red hot and increase the chances that you can make a spark with it. But it's actually the when the spark flies off, it's the metal because you're finding a rock that is harder than the metal. So it's superheated, flies off, and then you got to have some way to catch that spark. Uh, char cloth, you know, uh, that's a whole thing in itself. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that right now. But my point is, it's problematic. you got to have just the right things in place. And if you happen to find those things, you're probably not going to find them everywhere. So if you lose it, damn, you're back to square one. I would put my energy into friction fire. Friction fire all over the world, there's going to be ways to utilize this. I can't say every single spot on the earth, but chances are if you're at a spot that you don't have the materials to try some friction fire, you've got all kinds of problems. <laughs> um, that's a pretty barren spot. Um, so bow drill, look that up, throw your energy into it. Maybe we'll do a, uh, a video on that. And the other thing I would, I would say is once you get your fire started, um, banking your coals, Having <laughs> finding some way to preserve your fire is really important. It's not like a lighter where you just let your fire go out continually and you, you just think, you know, you take for granted you're going to start it up. If you have won your fire, if your fire has come to your camp and you're lucky enough to have a fire, figure out how to preserve it. Build it up, get some good coals. I, we've learned to dig a little hole about the size of a soup can. There's a video on this, too, where Teresa's showing a one-match fire, and she talks about this hole. But we found that to be the best way to bank coals. If it's raining really hard, maybe I'll find flat pieces of bark and kind of cover it up, or even rocks. But some way to bank those coals, and if you have a little nest for it in the middle of your fire pit, you'll probably have coals that you can stir up, add some tiny sticks to it, um, and have a fire the next day. And my other favorite thing, this is what I was meaning to say earlier, birch bark. Mm. Get to know the birch tree. 
Um, I love having a bag full of birch bark. There's a lot of ways to help you start a fire in wet weather and challenging weather, fire bugs, Vaseline-soaked cotton balls. My favorite is birch bark. If I've got a handful of birch bark, that stuff has oils in it that even when damp um, can ignite, and it really can mean the difference between you having a fire and not having a fire. So practice. All right. Marathon run through the survival priorities. <laughs> I hope I'm not going so quick. Usually it uh, feels awkward to talk at this pace about these things because usually I'm sitting in the grass with a bunch of kids and they're asking me questions and it's more conversational. But hopefully you're benefiting something from this and please ask questions if you have them. But let that brings us to the last one, food. Mm. All right, you're feeling pretty calm. I'm not saying you're feeling like, you know, it's the best thing in the world, but you're getting through it. It's an adventure. You know, you're counting your blessings. You got your shelter. It's probably not going to work too good the first night. I hope you made a leaf pile. Um, maybe you're improving it. A few nights in, now you're building something. And you're like, all right, this is starting to work. You're drinking water, not sick yet. Seems to be working. You got a fire, and man, that fire, you're feeling kind of homey. Now it's time to turn your attention to food. And again, these are not steps. If you see food when you're looking for your shelter location, you better be sticking that crap in your pockets. <laughs> you don't just like, oh, that's number five on the priority list and walk past it. Um, it just gives you a general guide of importance. Food is challenging in this day and age, this world we live in. Again, I can't talk about food without it bringing to mind the madness of our culture. We have intentionally destroyed the food base of our world. The way the government maintains control of us, one of the ways, is by controlling the food. Daniel Quinn talks about this. He says one of the staples of our culture is that the food is kept under lock and key. If you ever wonder if you're among people of your own culture... Check to see if the food is under lock and key and if you're expected to work to get it. The vast number of of indigenous cultures on this planet have not done this. This is a novel idea to our culture. Food is free. You go out and you get it. And when I hear descriptions of the way the world used to be as, as recently as 100, 200 years ago, passenger pigeons that filled the skies, buffalo that filled the prairies, salmon so full in the streams that you couldn't put a paddle in without hitting a salmon. You just bring a basket and scoop them up. Food was everywhere. I don't know how intentional. I know some of the food was wiped out intentionally to defeat the indigenous people and keep the populations under control. Some of it, I don't know, maybe accidentally as a byproduct of our industrialization. But it's a sad state of affairs that now it is such a dire thing. And it is a difficult skill now. Um... One thing that's going to happen when you go out there is no matter how healthy you think you eat, you're probably going to go through a period of detox. This surprised me when I first started doing survival overnights and uh, going on other people's survival expeditions. And I was warned about this. They're like, you're going to detox from bread. You're going to detox from coffee. You're going to detox, of course, from drugs and things that you do like that if you drink beer. You're going to detox from dairy. You're going to detox from a lot of things you're used to. So Sugar. Sugar. Oh, my God. Definitely. So for a few days, you're going to feel like crap. You're probably going to have a throbbing headache. The food isn't going to like, might not sit that well. Um, That depends on who you are and your constitution. But expect that. Prepare yourself that for a few days, um, this is going to be difficult. That food is going to be challenging and you're not going to feel good even if you're eating. Um, If that's not true for you, then wow, you're lucky. Um, Most people I know have gone through something like that. I've heard it said that plants keep you healthy, but protein keeps you alive. So 
the real race for food is going to be about protein. Get to know your wild edible plants. You're going to want to know those. They're going to, like I said, you want to be healthy. And for lack of anything else to eat, you're going to want to have something. So that that, that plant base is going to be a dependable, like, as if there are people around, they're probably not going to take so many plants that you can't find anything. Plants are going to be something to eat when you can't find anything else. And occasionally, they will provide protein in the autumn when you find your nuts. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there are certain plants like jewelweed that have little seeds in them that have protein. I've even heard it said that lamb's quarters has protein in it, which I need to research more. But the race is going to be protein. Um, a lot of vegetarians and vegans in our culture, those choices make a certain amount of sense within the civilization because it is a monstrous way that we treat animals in the meat industry. Um, but when you get out in the woods, <coughs> I've yet to have it proven to me that a vegan can maintain their lifestyle when they're directly eating from the land, when they don't have industrial civilization creating a um, artificial environment. Refrigeration. Yeah, this mass agriculture, beans, uh, you know, tofu, the things like that, refrigeration. So protein is going to be tricky. Um, there's going to be really stiff competition out there. There's a lot of people who have guns and that have varying degrees of hunting. So the things that are easy to get, they're going to be shot. The squirrels that are in people's yards, the deer that are nearby, usually young deer, um, raccoons, you know, you name it. Fish, plenty of people know how to fish, maybe better than you. So they're going to be out there. Fishing's going to be all over the place. It's going to be really stiff competition. Food is going to be challenging. Uh, I scavenge for the most part now. That's going to go away so quick, especially with food. Upcycling will last a little bit longer. That's going to take some imagination and experience. You're going to see things other people can't. But everybody's going to see the damn can of beans and know what that's about. They're <laughs> going to take that. That's going to go away really quick. Um, the best way to get the bang for your buck with um, survival food is to make a stew. You're going to have to think of sources of unlikely protein. So the deer are going to be hunted, the rabbits, things like that. But there aren't going to be a lot of people looking for earthworms. Mm. There aren't going to be maybe as many people going in the streams getting the crayfish. Um, and I would think at this point the population is going to be plummeting. So I would have concerns like about over-harvesting. You know, I, I feel bad even now when I, when I take things. The earth is under such... Uh, duress right now. I don't want to add to its problems. And yet, when I think about the way I usually live when I'm going not going out and killing an animal with my bare hands, the things that enable me to live the way I do from driving a van, there's death happening all over the place. It's feeding me. I'm actually probably causing less death by killing the one rabbit than when I just go and, you know, buy from the grocery store, even if I'm buying vegan, because you think about what the farm fields, what has to happen to create a farm field, even an organic one. Um, animals are being robbed of their homes, um, and a lot of them die. So think of unlikely sources of protein. Those plants. Not, not everybody's going to know about the plants or know how to harvest them. Practice now. Think about, like I said, uh, different ways to capture, like the, the insects. Uh, caterpillars, if they're not fuzzy, those big, fat, green ones, they don't even taste bad. They taste better than earthworms. I've had earthworms stew before. They turn kind of purple and are bitter. They're horrible. But... They made me feel full in a way that plants didn't. Protein. It's going to be a race for protein. And making a stew. Throwing everything into a stew. Your plants, 
any protein you find, throw it into a stew, and it's going to make it a lot more palatable, and it's also going to have the benefits of its a stew is basically a strong kind of tea. None of that nutrition is escaping your stew, or less of it. So get in the habit of making a stew, um, a survival stew. Sometimes it's going to be good. More often than not, it's going to taste like crap. But that's what survival is. It's keeping you alive until things get better. And if you keep at it, if you keep um, going, you keep your attitude right, things will get better. There's always that good day. Every time I've quit a survival trip, the next day, whatever was bothering me went away. (laughs) That cold rain, the clouds broke. It's a beautiful day. Um, Food was right around the corner. I just wasn't patient enough. Foraging and gathering, I've heard the basic four to start with are grasses. So grasses are hard to digest, but you can make a tea out of them, or you can chew them up and spit them out. Um, Most, if not all, grasses are edible, and they provide vitamin A and D, which is really important. Getting to know your oak trees. Practice harvesting acorns. You can even make a light tannic acid tea, like one of your last boilings. With acorns, you got to like do this whole processing and boil it, pour out the water, boil it, pour out the water. The weaker tea you can actually drink, and it's good for your stomach. It can, uh, it's astringent, so if you have diarrhea, which is something that you're likely to run into with all these changes in your diet, it can help. Good medicine. The stronger tea is a good skin wash. So the oak tree is a really good tree to get to know, and chances are there's some kind of oak around you. Protein. The acorns provide protein. Pine trees. The inner bark you can eat. It's a hell of a thing to try to <laughs> gather. It tastes like the green peel of a banana. It's horrible, but it's also a source of starch. You can also um, use pine trees to make like flour when they're pollinating. Um, If you've been in the southeast, you know how thick that pine pollen can get. You can make a a type of bread with that. And mainly you got vitamin C. Pine needles of all kinds, you can boil them up, make vitamin C, and that helps round out your diet. And finally, cattails, which are kind of cheating when I think of these basic four because they're a type of grass. But Cattails have these good tubers, and they're a source of starch. If you can find those four plants, you've got a fairly well-rounded diet that can get you through until you start finding better things. So the basic four. um, That's one of the things I haven't personally found as useful as other things, but I'm passing it on because I know other people who have. So remember, the root word of... How do you pronounce that? It's not hummus. Humus? Like earth? Yeah. That root word is shared with a lot of other words we're familiar with. is humor, humility, humbleness. These are all things. I find it really interesting that they share the same root word. So if you want to get closer to the earth, these other traits that are considered tied to that word are very helpful. you got to be able to laugh at yourself, find the brighter side, keep things light when you can, be humble, listen, um, not get cocky. That cockiness will kill you. So... I guess that kind of winds us up um, in my crash course through the priorities of survival as we get back to reality. And uh, like I said, I would choose to start practicing it now. Start getting back to reality now before it's forced on you because you might not be ready for reality. It's sobering when I'm going through these redwood forests now and I'm looking at these huge trees that I've read about the white pines out east and I've read about the, the size of some of the trees before we started logging and realizing that I've spent my life loving the forest, learning about the forest, but how rare have I actually been in a forest? What I think of the as the forest is kind of a war zone. It's a decimated second or third growth area that's struggling to recuperate. I'm not very actually very familiar with the forest of my own planet. 
And uh, that was a sobering thought yesterday. So, yeah. Any final thoughts, Teresa? Well, I was just going to mention that we're going to be making podcasts in the future on each of these individual um, priorities of survival. Gumby mentioned that in the beginning, too. But I'm excited now, more so, because I know there's so many things that we couldn't get to this podcast. So hopefully we'll bring those to you um, next season or so. Yeah, and actually the next podcast we're doing is about foraging wild plants. So um, if you want more information on food, definitely stay tuned for that. And hopefully it'll be a more relaxed pace. We'll be able to (laughs) talk at more length and share more stories. But if you have any questions or comments, please um, let us know. You can go to our website and contact us that way. You can also go to our website and find our YouTube videos. Um, Our website is www.escapingsociety.weebly.com. B as in burnitdown.com. Um, and yeah, I guess that finishes up um, our Back to Reality podcast, and I hope it helped you. Bye. <laughs>